I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Here on Doomsday Watch, we like to take the broadest possible view to help you understand what's happening in Ukraine. So it was a great pleasure to catch up with Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy at the University of Cambridge and author of Disorder, her fantastic new book on geopolitics. We started our conversation in a slightly unexpected place, the Suez Crisis of the 1950s, but I think you'll see how it makes sense. Helen, welcome. Pleasure to be here, Arthur. So, Helen... um, Briefly, for those who haven't had the chance to look at your book, what what were the sort of central themes of it as you sought to kind of examine both the the dynamics in geopolitics, in energy, in finance and economics leading up to the sort of the, the early 2020s? Well, I think the, what I intended to do when I started anyway was to try and explain the political turbulence of the 2010s. And particularly, obviously, the second half of the decade and in some sense with those shocks of 2016, Brexit, Trump, um, as central to that. And what I thought it was necessary to do was to give a long history to that decade to explain really how disruption cascaded from place to place and sphere to sphere through the 2010s. And so as an example of that, uh, a fascinating aspect of the book, which, of course, I'm sure it wasn't planned that way, but emerged on the, the day of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, a fascinating aspect of the book is your reading of the Suez Crisis, which in a in an odd way, I think, has kind of re-emerged in political consciousness in Britain, perhaps as a result of Brexit, where we look back to a, another perhaps hubristic episode in our in our sort of foreign policy. But but you you see Suez through a sort of lens of energy security rather than kind of imperial domination. Well, I think that the point I wanted to draw out of the Suez crisis was really that it's both. And the importance of Suez crisis is several fold. But at the centre of it, I think, lies the fact that the British were doing what they were supposed to do. They were looking after the access of West European countries or the the security around the access of West European countries to oil um, through the Suez Canal, through which most of the oil that came to Western Europe from the the Middle East um, passed. And the Americans wanted the West European countries to import oil from the Middle East. The Americans didn't want West European countries to be importing oil either from the Soviet Union um, because of the Cold War, or from the Western mm. Hemisphere, including the United States itself, um, because the United States was, or American presidents, I should say, was was were sufficiently worried about the United States' long-term oil security that it wanted. They wanted Western Hemisphere oil for the Americans. Yeah. Um, so the British were supposed to act like an imperial power in the Middle East, 
Um, and that's what Anthony Eden did um, in the autumn of, or the summer and autumn of 1956. But it was extraordinarily inconvenient for Eisenhower for the British to act in that way, as actually that they were supposed to, um, both because Eisenhower was up for re-election um, and because it coincided with the, the Soviet invasion um, of Hungary. Mm. Uh, and Eisenhower pulled the plug on what was the British plus French and Israeli um, operation. To the extent it was hubris, it was hubris because the British had to learn that the Americans could use American financial power to stop Britain doing what Britain was supposed to do in energy security terms. And it horrified not just the British government and the French government, but it horrified the West German government. I mean, no one was more horrified by what happened in the Suez crisis than Konrad Adenauer, uh, the West German um, chancellor. And out of the West European reaction, not really the British reaction, but particularly the West German, I would say, and the Italian reaction to the Suez crisis came the first decisive turn back to Soviet energy, to Soviet oil. And, and later, once that relationship had been established, there was the basis for the the Soviet, now Russian, gas relationship. That, as we know, is hugely yep. consequential today. So in that sense, there's a line that runs from Suez and the British action and failure in um, Suez to the situation that existed um, up to the 23rd of February uh, in terms of the German assumption in particular that a lot of important part of its energy needs were best served by a relationship with Russia, previously the Soviet Union. Yeah. And and there's, of course, there's so much to talk about, as you say, you know, the 24th of February. But uh, before we go to that, it seems to me that the other sort of really important, uh, as you say, there are sort of three, three kind of interwoven strands to the to the kind of the rope of this narrative. The other two that really seems worth talking about are sort of finance and democracy. And what's interesting here, and obviously, you know, you're a historian, so you're you're you you have a, a natural ability to see a longer perspective. A lot of people have uh, focused on the aftermath of the sort of 2008 financial crisis and the idea that financial services precipitated a global economics meltdown. But what you seem to be saying is that actually this is something that has a much longer tail that 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 was that began you know perhaps fifty years ago rather than than just uh, just over ten years ago. I think there's several different things here. I, I certainly wouldn't want to underestimate the importance of the the two thousand and eight crash, and I think that you can see that particularly clearly in the United States when there was such a sharp contrast between banks being bailed out and um, many people who held mortgages that they could no longer afford not being bailed out. I mean, one significant yeah. difference between Britain and the United States after the crash was that Britain didn't have a foreclosures crisis, whereas the US really, really did. I think it had profound political consequences um, there. I think the thing about the crash that was not understood well at the time was that it wasn't just a financial crash that there were, in some sense, multiple crashes going on. And one of them was around what had gone on around energy and oil in particular. So the mm. prelude um, to the events of 2007-2008 in the real economy, as opposed to what banks um, were doing, 
was an extraordinarily sharp rise in oil prices, particularly through the second half of 2007 and the first half of 2008. So oil prices in the middle of 2008 reached their highest ever price before coming um, crashing down. And actually, I think if you look at the evidence, there's quite a strong case to be made, which I make in the book and have made elsewhere at longer length, that it's that spike in oil prices that was primarily responsible for the recessions in Western economies. And then that the financial crash around in, at the moment of the Lehman Brothers um, bankruptcy, if you like, crashed in to those already recessionary economies and deepened the um, recessions. And I think the energy aspects of what was going on in the middle of the decade were just taken over by the, the seismic shock around finance and that made it harder for people to see like that the 2010s had at their economic center in some sense the ability of the u.s shale oil boom to take care of the world's oil supply for a decade yeah so we come inevitably to the world since uh, the 24th of mm. february and it feels like everything that we're talking about has changed fundamentally and i suppose i'm interested to understand whether that changes some of the kind of fundamental analysis. Uh, So, you know, just to whip through, European countries apparently are no longer going to depend on Russian gas. Uh, Saudi Arabia is apparently no longer part of the sort of Western Energy Alliance. Uh, Inflation has returned with a vengeance. We are still on a commitment to uh, net zero. So in, in a way, there's a trajectory which which perhaps reinforces some of these kind of sudden developments. And then also, not Ukraine-related, but COVID-related. COVID did, uh, it seems to me, change the rule book in terms of how Europe behaves over major kind of financial and economic decisions. And that must be relevant because it gave Europe a greater ability to to take some big calls on energy in the light of the Ukraine crisis. So everything has changed, and but has everything remained the same, or, or are we really in a, a new world now? I think that we are in a, a new world in some respects. Russia had, where energy was concerned, a, let's just call it um, a dual approach, it wanted to hold on to its European markets and it had been implementing since the, I'd say at least since 2003, and you could argue before um, that, um, a turn towards Asia. So Russia wanted to be a Eurasian energy power and that was different than what the Soviet Union had been as an energy power, Um, which in terms of outside the Soviet Union itself and the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe have been entirely focused on Western Europe. Yeah. And although it was clear that there were a number of European um, countries who, like Poland, who were trying to take the opportunity of the American shale gas boom in particular to escape from that energy relationship with Russia, the Russian and European energy relationship was quite entrenched, and particularly it was entrenched because of the relationship between Germany and Russia over energy, which has got very long you know, historical origins that go back to the first part of the 20th um, century. So I think a war that throws into question in a really serious way 
the ability of Russia to hold on to European energy markets has to change actually quite a lot. Yeah. It also raises the question, I think, about how easy it will be for the European countries really to decisively break with Russia. When we understand this change is occurring at a moment in which two of the fossil fuel energies, oil and, and gas, were already, I would say, reaching some kind of like crisis point in terms of supply constraints in relation to demand. So yeah. before the Omicron virus at the end of last year, we could see, I think, that an energy crisis was already beginning to take um, shape. That was the explanation about why gas prices were as high as they were um, in Europe and Asia. So in energy terms, I think that there's both continuity and discontinuity. I think beyond that, the really hard question that we don't still really know what the answer is, is, is how is this war going to end? Um, and what are the implications for Russia? Because I think you can say, and I've said this several times, I think that one way in which the world changed profoundly on the 24th of February, the day of the invasion, was that one of the three most important geopolitical powers in the um, world made a big strategic blunder. Mm. And that just has to change the world. Now, initially, I would say that the... American response, Joe Biden administration's response, was just sort of to, in some sense, let that go and to be quite passive about the fact that that had happened, um, even when it became clear very quickly that the Russian army wouldn't be able to fulfil the objectives that Putin had set um, for it in terms of regime change in yeah. Ukraine. But then we saw some point in April a clear change in the position in Washington of wanting to take advantage of Russia's blunder. I'm beginning to, to to think that in the last, even just perhaps the last week, that perhaps there's some evidence of backing away from that and some evidence um, as the performance of the Russian military, at least in terms of outcomes, seems to improve a bit at least, um, as to whether there really is going to be such a push um, to take advantage for the US. But I think it's very difficult to think through the geopolitical consequences of the war now until it's clear really both how long the war is going to go on, what the likely end game is, and what the position of the Biden administration is in terms of whether it really does think that this is an opportunity to weaken Russia permanently. Um, Helen, in a slightly broader context, I mean, I know that the, um, I think the International Energy Agency uh, sort of had estimated that in in the sort of long long durée, the, the the peak demand of global hydrocarbons has probably already been reached, and clearly that the net zero drive, which is is still largely uh, in Western countries and, and particularly in Europe, but you know we've seen a election in Australia and so on, that that is is surely to have an effect. And allied to that, I'm very struck, particularly having myself worked a lot in the Middle East, by uh, the role of Saudi Arabia in all of this. Because one, one version of this crisis could have been the Saudis uh, seeing an opportunity 
to play to their long-running security relationships with Western countries and sort of step into the breach, pump more oil, ship more gas, uh, and, and basically kind of say, you know, don't worry, we've got your back. Um, you know, those nasty Russians have spoilt things for you, but we're, we're here to help. But they've done the opposite of that. Um, so uh, it, it seems to me that it's not just about Russia becoming a Eurasian energy supplier. It's about the kind of balance of global energy markets shifting in a, to, to a much more conflictual basis. Yeah, I mean, I think that the question of what happened to Saudi Arabia during the 2010s is very important. I spent quite a bit of time talking about it in disorder because I think that one of the profound effects of the American shale oil boom that was geopolitically disruptive was that when you move from a world in which there were two large oil producers in the world, Saudi Arabia and Russia, and they were rivals um, with each other and didn't cooperate, Russia wasn't a member of OPEC, um, to a world in which there are three major Mm -hmm. oil producers, then the one who has basically been calling the shots until that point, Saudi Arabia, or more calling the shots more than anybody else anyway, uh, mm. is in a very difficult position. And it would have been so even if there weren't other things going on, like the Obama administration's desire for some kind of rapprochement with um, Iran after Iran had been pushed into a, a nuclear um, deal and the differences yeah. between the Americans and the Saudis over what happened in um, Syria. So one of the outcomes of the shale oil boom was OPEC plus, the alliance between OPEC countries plus Russia and some of the other non-OPEC oil producers, including former Soviet states like Kazakhstan. One of the interesting things that happened in the sort of very beginning of the pandemic was really the breakdown of OPEC um, plus disagreements between Putin and Mohammed bin Salman about how to react to the crash in Chinese demand for oil in the first months of 2020. And notably, it was Donald Trump who put OPEC plus back together and for a while pushed the United States into it too. So actually you had this extraordinary moment really um, sort of in the middle of 2020 where the United States and Russia and Saudi Arabia were all cooperating to try to put a floor on oil prices because oil prices being as low as they fell in March 2020 was in in nobody's um, interest. But unsurprisingly, Mm. that kind of relationship between the three principal oil producers, even leaving aside the personalities involved, was hardly going to be um, stable. (laughs) And then when um, Biden took over from um, Trump, he was a lot less interested in being close to the the Saudis than Trump had been. And what we can see um, since then... Um, is that the Saudi-Russian part of it has now held quite firm. Not only has the American cooperation part of it fallen away, um, but the Saudis, as you say, have made it very clear that they're not willing to cooperate with the Biden administration in any way really whatsoever. Now, I think part of that is because actually OPEC Plus has limited capacity actually to provide that much extra oil. The Saudis certainly could The United Arab Emirates probably could, but not really anybody else can. Um, So I suppose as we come to the end of our time, I want to kind of return to Europe because perhaps one of the central themes of your book is the way in which Europe 
has been buffeted by its dependence on energy from other places. Now, we don't know how the war in Ukraine is going to end, if indeed it is going to end, but it's impossible that it ends with a strengthening of Russia and of Putin. And as we've already observed, it comes at a time when Europe is seeking to diversify its energy supply, both in terms of geography, but also type. Clearly, offshore wind, solar, nuclear, these are all things which we must be going to see more of. And then also this strengthening effect of major crisis, uh, which has, uh, has come both from COVID, Europe finally finding a way to share debt um, uh, obligations across the, the Eurozone, but also then it seems that even Germany recognising that it has to be a significant military power if it's going to be a globally significant economy. So you've got all these changes. Is Europe, after a very long period of, of you know, some might call it a free ride, being a free rider, is Europe finally going to sort of assume the geopolitical actor status that it ought to have given the size of its economy? Or will it continue to muddle through relying on others in different ways and, and, and be rather incoherent in that ge- geopolitical space? I mean, I think that the geopolitical shock that's been experienced in Europe by the war has to have consequences, and we, we can already see that. I don't think that there's any way in which Europe collectively and any individual European country can go back to the geopolitical complacency that I think dominated a lot of the continent, not all of the continent, um, prior to the 24th of February, the day of the um, invasion. And I think that there's been a, a shift in the, in some sense, geopolitical balance of power within the European Union, um, which has weakened Berlin and Paris's influence on these matters, at least as it geopolitics pertains to the relationship with Russia, and strengthened the position of Warsaw, Poland and of the Baltic republics because in some sense their worldview of Russia has been vindicated over the view that prevailed in Berlin and Paris. And again, you you can't undo that. I think that that's now part of the geopolitical landscape in Europe. I mean, what I would say is two things that that will be caveats to the Europe's going to get its geopolitical act together. The first of them would be that the energy situation is still very difficult and fraught for European countries. Although that there's clearly an ambition to make Europe into the first carbon, at least neutral, if not carbon-free, um, continent, there are a certain set of issues, particularly around metals and mining metals, that are going to involve European countries in some of the same difficulties of external dependency that oil and gas entailed um, for them. I think the second thing is that there's a a looming question that I spend a reasonable amount of time in the geopolitics, uh, or certainly the latter geopolitical history that I tell um, in disorder about Turkey and the difficulties for the European Union of having a coherent relationship with Turkey Um, including in relation to some energy questions. And as the search for gas alternatives, in particular to Russian gas, as that goes on, the East Mediterranean is going to come to the fore. And then there are a set of really hard geopolitical tensions 
there. Turkey, Greece, Turkey, France, different views in Berlin and Paris about how to deal with the, the Turkey question. We could see some of those playing out um, in 2019, 2020. And I think that in the same way in which it was very difficult for European countries to agree on how to deal with Russia, it's going to be very difficult for them to agree to how to deal with Turkey. And Turkey's position in NATO has, I think, really been strengthened by the war, um, both because of the Turkish supply of drones to um, Ukraine that have been very effective um, for Ukraine, but also quite obviously because of Turkey's position on the Black Sea and Turkey controlling access. Uh, so Turkey's renewed importance in itself makes things more difficult, I think, for the French view of Turkey to prevail. But at the same time, some of the issues that divide Turkey and France in relation to the East Mediterranean are going to intensify because of the importance of East Mediterranean gas for the medium term. Yeah. And of course, we're seeing an aspect of that play out with Turkey holding up. I'm saying that advisedly because I I doubt they'll actually block the the accession of Sweden and Finland um, into the NATO alliance. No, but clearly they might ask for some concessions on other areas in return. Helen, thank you so much. Um, Remind us uh, your book, where it's published and so on. Yeah, the book's Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, and it's published by Oxford University Press. Uh, There couldn't be a more apt time for people to read this kind of book. So thank you very much for joining us and for sharing your really uh, remarkable insights. Thanks very much, Arthur. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.